Section 33 of Jean-Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean-Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Youth 3, Part 2. The puffing of the steamer outside the window brought Christophe from his torpor. They had agreed to leave at seven, so as to return to the town in time for their usual occupations. He whispered, "'Do you hear?' She did not open her eyes. She smiled, she put out her lips, she tried to kiss him, and then let her head fall back on his shoulder. Through the window-panes he saw the funnel of the steamer slip by against the sky. He saw the empty deck and clouds of smoke. Once more he slipped into dreaminess. An hour passed without his knowing it. He heard it strike and started in astonishment. "'Ada!' he whispered to the girl. "'Ada!' he said again. "'It's eight o'clock!' Her eyes were still closed. She frowned and pouted pettishly. "'Oh, let me sleep,' she said. She sighed wearily and turned her back on him and went to sleep once more. He began to dream. His blood ran bravely, calmly through him. His limpid senses received the smallest impressions simply and freshly. He rejoiced in his strength and youth. Unwittingly he was proud of being a man. He smiled in his happiness, and felt himself alone, alone as he had always been, more lonely even, but without sadness, in a divine solitude, no more fever. No more shadows, nature could freely cast a reflection upon his soul in its serenity, lying on his back, facing the window, his eyes gazing deep into the dazzling air with its luminous mists, he smiled. How good it is to live! To live! A boat passed, the thought suddenly of those who were no longer alive, of a boat gone by on which they were together. He? She? She? not that one sleeping by his side, she, the only she, the beloved, the poor little woman who was dead. But is it that one? How came she there? How did they come to this room? He looks at her. He does not know her. She is a stranger to him. Yesterday morning she did not exist for him. What does he know of her? He knows that she is not clever. He knows that she is not good. He knows that she is not even beautiful with her face, spiritless and bloated with sleep, her low forehead, her mouth open in breathing, her swollen, dried lips pouting like a fish. He knows that he does not love her, and he is filled with a bitter sorrow when he thinks that he kissed those strange lips in the first moment with her, that he has taken this beautiful body for which he cares nothing on the first night of their meeting and that she whom he loved he watched her live and die by his side and never dared touch her hair with his lips that he will never know the perfume of her being nothing more all is crumbled away the earth has taken all from him and he never defended what was his and while he leaned over the innocent sleeper and scanned her face and looked at her with eyes of unkindness she felt his eyes upon her Uneasy under his scrutiny, she made a great effort to raise her heavy lids and to smile, and she said, 
stammering a little, like a waking child. "'Don't look at me. I'm ugly.' She fell back at once, weighed down with sleep, smiled once more, murmured, "'Oh, I'm so, so sleepy,' and went off again into her dreams. He could not help laughing. He kissed her childish lips more tenderly. He watched the girl sleeping for a moment longer, and got up quietly. She gave a comfortable sigh when he was gone. He tried not to wake her as he dressed, though there was no danger of that. And when he had done, he sat in the chair near the window, and watched the steaming, smoking river, which looked as though it were covered with ice, and he fell into a brown study in which there hovered music, pastoral, melancholy. From time to time she half opened her eyes and looked at him vaguely, took a second or two, smiled at him, and passed from one sleep to another. She asked him the time. A quarter to nine. Half asleep she pondered. What? Can it be a quarter to nine? At half-past nine she stretched, sighed, and said that she was going to get up. It was ten o'clock before she stirred. She was petulant. "'Striking again. The clock is fast.' He laughed and went and sat on the bed by her side. She put her arms round his neck and told him her dreams. He did not listen very attentively, and interrupted her with little love-words. But she made him be silent, and went on very seriously, as though she were telling something of the highest importance. She was at dinner. The Grand Duke was there. Mira was a Newfoundland dog. No, a frizzy sheep who waited at table. Ada had discovered a method of rising from the earth, of walking, dancing, and lying down in the air. You see, it was quite simple. You had only to do thus, thus, and it was done. Christophe laughed at her. She laughed, too, though a little ruffled at his laughing. She shrugged her shoulders. Ah, you don't understand. They breakfasted on the bed from the same cup, with the same spoon. At last she got up. She threw off the bedclothes and slipped down from the bed. Then she sat down to recover her breath and looked at her feet. Finally she clapped her hands and told him to go out, and as he was in no hurry about it, she took him by the shoulders and thrust him out of the door, and then locked it. After she had dawdled, looked over, and stretched each of her handsome limbs, she sang, as she washed, a sentimental lead in fourteen couplets, threw water at Christophe's face, he was outside drumming on the window, and as they left she plucked the last rose in the garden, and then they took the steamer. The mist was not yet gone, but the sun shone through it. They floated through a creamy light. Ada sat at the stern with Christophe. She was sleepy and a little sulky. She grumbled about the light in her eyes, and said that she would have a headache all day. And as Christophe did not take her complaint seriously enough, she returned into morose silence. Her eyes were hardly opened, and in them was the funny gravity of children who have just woke up. But at the next landing stage an elegant lady came and sat not far from her, and she grew lively at once. She talked eagerly to Christophe about things sentimental and distinguished. She had resumed with him the ceremonious C. Christophe was thinking about what she could say to her employer by way of excuse for her lateness. She was hardly at all concerned about it. Bah! It's not the first time. The first time that—what? That I have been late, she said, putting
put out by the question. He dared not ask her what had caused her lateness. "'What will you tell her?' "'That my mother is ill. Dead. How do I know?' He was hurt by her talking so lightly. "'I don't want you to lie.' She took offense. First of all, I never lie, and then I cannot very well tell her. He asked her half in jest, half in earnest. Why not? She laughed, shrugged, and said that he was coarse and ill-bred, and that she had already asked him not to use the do to her. Haven't I the right? Certainly not. After what has happened? Nothing has happened. She looked at him a little defiantly and laughed and although she was joking, he felt most strongly that it would not have cost her much to say it seriously, and almost to believe it. But some pleasant memory tickled her, for she burst out laughing, and looked at Christophe and kissed him loudly, without any concern for the people about, who did not seem to be in the least surprised by it. Now on all his excursions he was accompanied by shop-girls and clerks. He did not like their vulgarity, and used to try to lose them, but Ada, out of contrariness, was no longer disposed for wandering in the woods. When it rained, or for some other reason they did not leave the town, he would take her to the theatre, or the museum, or the Tiergarten, for she insisted on being seen with him. She even wanted him to go to church with her, but he was so absurdly sincere that he would not set foot inside a church, since he had lost his belief. On some other excuse he had resigned his position as organist and, at the same time, unknown to himself, remained much too religious not to think Ada's proposal sacrilegious. He used to go to her rooms in the evening. Mira would be there, for she lived in the same house. Mira was not at all resentful against him. She would hold out her soft hand, caressingly, and talk of trivial and improper things, and then dip away discreetly. The two women had never seemed to be such friends as since they had had small reason for being so. They were always together. Ada had no secrets from Mira. She told her everything. Mira listened to everything. They seemed to be equally pleased with it all. Christophe was ill at ease in the company of the two women. Their friendship, their strange conversations, their freedom of manner, the crude way in which Mira especially viewed and spoke of things— not so much in his presence, however, as when he was not there, but Ada used to repeat her sayings to him. Their indiscreet and impertinent curiosity, which was forever turned upon subjects that were silly or basely sensual, the whole equivocal and rather animal atmosphere oppressed him terribly, though it interested him, for he knew nothing like it. He was at sea in the conversations of the two little beasts who talked of dress and made silly jokes and laughed in an inept way with their eyes shining with delight when they were off on the track of some spicy story. He was more at ease when Mira left them. When the two women were together, it was like being in a foreign country without knowing the language. It was impossible to make himself understood. They did not even listen. They poked fun at the foreigner. When he was alone with Ada, they went on speaking different languages but at least they did make some attempt to understand each other. To tell the truth, the more he understood her, the less he understood her. She was the first woman he had known, for if poor Sabina was a woman he had known, he had known nothing of her. 
She had always remained for him a phantom of his heart. Ada took upon herself to make him make up for lost time. In his turn, he tried to solve the riddle of woman, an enigma which perhaps is no enigma except for those who seek some meaning in it. Ada was without intelligence. That was the least of her faults. Christophe would have commended her for it if she had approved it herself. But although she was occupied only with stupidities, she claimed to have some knowledge of the things of the spirit, and she judged everything with complete assurance. She would talk about music, and explain to Christophe things which he knew perfectly, and would pronounce absolute judgment and sentence. It was useless to try to convince her she had pretensions and susceptibilities in everything. She gave herself airs. She was obstinate, vain. She would not, she could not understand anything. Why would she not accept that she could understand nothing? He loved her so much better when she was content with being just what she was, simply, with her own qualities and failings, instead of trying to impose on others and herself. In fact, she was little concerned with thought. She was concerned with eating, drinking, singing, dancing, crying, laughing, sleeping. She wanted to be happy, and that would have been all right if she had succeeded. But although she had every gift for it, she was greedy, lazy, sensual, and frankly egoistic, in a way that revolted and amused Christophe, although she had almost all the vices which make life pleasant for their fortunate possessor, if not for their friends, and even then does not a happy face, at least if it be pretty, shed happiness on all those who come near it? In spite of so many reasons for being satisfied with life and herself, Ada was not even clever enough for that. The pretty, robust girl, fresh, hearty, healthy-looking, endowed with abundant spirits and fierce appetites, was anxious about her health. She bemoaned her weakness, while she ate enough for four. She was always sorry for herself. She could not drag herself along. She could not breathe. She had a headache, feet ache, her eyes ached, her stomach ached, her soul ached. She was afraid of everything, and madly superstitious, and saw omens everywhere. At meals the crossing of knives and forks, the number of the guests, the upsetting of a salt-cellar. Then there must be a whole ritual to turn aside misfortune. Out walking she would count the crows, and never failed to watch which side they flew to. She would anxiously watch the road at her feet, and when a spider crossed her path in the morning she would cry out aloud. Then she would wish to go home, and there would be no other means of not interrupting the walk than to persuade her that it was after twelve, and so the omen was one of hope rather than of evil. She was afraid of her dreams. She would recount them at length to Christophe. For hours she would try to recollect some detail that she had forgotten. She never spared him one. Absurdities piled one on the other, strange marriages, deaths, dressmakers' prices, burlesque, and sometimes obscene things. He had to listen to her and give her his advice. Often she would be for a whole day under the obsession of her inept fancies. She would find life ill-ordered. She would see things and people rawly and overwhelm Christophe with her jeremiads, and it seemed hardly worth while to have broken away from the gloomy middle-class people with whom he lived to find once more the eternal enemy, the trauriger und griechischer hypochandrist. But suddenly in the midst of her sulks and grumblings, 
she would become gay, noisy, exaggerated. There was no more dealing with her gaiety than with her moroseness. She would burst out laughing for no reason and seem as though she were never going to stop. She would rush across the fields, play mad tricks and childish pranks, take a delight in doing silly things, in mixing with the earth and dirty things and the beasts and the spiders and worms, in teasing them and hurting them and making them eat each other. The cats eat the birds, the fowls the worms, the ants the spiders, not from any wickedness, or perhaps from an altogether unconscious instinct for evil, from curiosity, or from having nothing better to do. She seemed to be driven always to say stupid things, to repeat senseless words again and again, to irritate Christophe, to exasperate him, set his nerves on edge, and make him almost beside himself. And her coquetry, as soon as anybody, no matter who, appeared on the road, then she would talk excitedly, laugh noisily, make faces, draw attention to herself. She would assume an affected, mincing gait. Christophe would have a horrible presentiment that she was going to plunge into serious discussion. And indeed, she would do so. She would become sentimental, uncontrolledly, just as she did everything. She would unbosom herself in a loud voice. Christophe would suffer and long to beat her. Least of all could he forgive her her lack of sincerity. He did not yet know that sincerity is a gift as rare as intelligence or beauty, and that it cannot justly be expected of everybody. He could not bear a lie, and Ada gave him lies in full measure. She was always lying, quite calmly, in spite of evidence to the contrary. She had that astounding faculty for forgetting what is displeasing to them, or even what has been pleasing to them, which those women possess who live from moment to moment. And in spite of everything, they loved each other with all their hearts. Ada was as sincere as Christophe in her love. Their love was none the less true for not being based on intellectual sympathy. It had nothing in common with base passion. It was the beautiful love of youth. It was sensual, but not vulgar, because it was altogether youthful. It was naive, almost chaste, purged by the ingenuous ardor of pleasure. Although Ada was not by a long way so ignorant as Christophe, yet she had still the divine privilege of youth of soul and body, that freshness of the senses, limpid and vivid as a running stream, which almost gives the illusion of purity, and through life is never replaced egoistic, commonplace, insincere in her ordinary life, love made her simple, true, almost good. She understood in love the joy that is to be found in self-forgetfulness. Christophe saw this with delight, and he would gladly have died for her. Who can tell all the absurd and touching illusions that a loving heart brings to its love? And the natural illusion of the lover was magnified an hundredfold in Christophe by the power of illusion which is born in the artist. Ada's smile held profound meanings for him. An affectionate word was the proof of the goodness of her heart. He loved in her all that is good and beautiful in the universe. He called her his own, his soul, his life. They wept together over their love. Pleasure was not the only bond between them. 
There was an indefinable poetry of memories and dreams, their own, or those of the men and women who had loved before them, who had been before them, in them, without a word, perhaps without knowing it, they preserved the fascination of the first moments of their meeting in the woods, the first days, the first nights together, those hours of sleep in each other's arms, still, unthinking, sinking down into a flood of love and silent joy, swift fancies, visions, dumb thoughts, titillating, and making them go pale, and their hearts sink under their desire, bringing all about them a buzzing as of bees, a fine light and tender, their hearts sink and beat no more, borne down in excess of sweetness, silence, languor, and fever, the mysterious weary smile of the earth quivering under the first sunlight of spring, so fresh a love in two young creatures is like an April morning. Like April it must pass. Youth of the heart is like an early feast of sunshine. End of section 33